Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week. You may recognize my face and my voice from the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. And after five years and lots of episodes with business titans and best-selling authors and Hollywood celebrities, we learned something consistent, that the most often rated, reviewed, shared, and commented on episodes weren't always the celebrity, but oftentimes people like you and I, that perhaps our authors or our entrepreneurs or our founders, that we can relate to. We can relate to their, their, their courage, their self-disruption, their vision as well. And so we spun off this new podcast called C-Suite Conversations, where each guest, each week rather, we interview a new guest from the C-Suite. And today, we have uh, a, a multifaceted guest joining us. He's actually joining us from his home in Bermuda. He is the author of several books and publications, Stuart Lacey. He is the CEO and founder of numerous companies, a serial entrepreneur. He joins us today in one of many roles as the founder of Summit Junto and the author of a book called The Formula for Luck. Now, how can you not want to read that book and learn more about that? Today, we're going to talk about all things luck-related, and a little bit of Stuart's own journey. The book's subtitle, The Formula for Luck, is Leave Nothing to Chance, 10 Powerful Principles for Building a Luck Mindset. Stuart, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you so much, Scott. Great to be here and really appreciate the opportunity to have a wonderful chat with you today. Now, Stuart, I'm stuck in um, beautiful, sleety Utah as we're taping this, and somehow you uh, got lucky and managed a life of luxury in Bermuda. Talk a bit about how you lucked out or the strategy behind being able to live and work and thrive in, of all places in the world, Bermuda. Well, great question. And, you know, just um, to start... I think grass is always greener if you think about it a bit, Scott, and I spend- No, 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 literally the grass is greener in Bermuda than it is here (laughs) in Utah, I can assure you. So, uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, long story very short, and to keep it entertaining, I, um, the hard part actually of my story was an incredibly difficult youth um, of bullying. And uh, I don't think anyone would ever want to go through that amount of bullying. And from that, I learned I wasn't going to fight back. I wasn't going to push back. I was going to probably outthink. And as a result of that, my modality from a young age all the way up as I started founding and building companies was to try and utilize different approaches to get the outcomes that I thought would be um, most impactful. And after um, growing up in South Africa and then, you know, spending a lot of time in Canada, Montreal, McGill University, and then Florida, I'd actually done so well with all of those practices that I'd had a fairly significant exit at quite a young age. And in Florida, I decided to actually go and uh, experience what the world looked like. And I kind of blew myself up. I I learned the lesson of hubris at uh, 23. And I actually then sold my television set for a one-way ticket to Bermuda. And in 1998, headed to Bermuda and started a journey of reapplying myself around all these core principles, especially uh, as an entrepreneur, as a business builder. Okay, now you truncated that story, so we're gonna rewind a little bit here. I got the sense that you had a a large financial exit from a company early in life, and then you talked about the lessons you learned from Hubris, and then you sold your TV set for a one-way ticket to Bermuda. I'm guessing you spent the proceeds on something. (laughs) I did, I, uh, you know, I probably departed 
I think, Scott, from all those really core principles. I think money can corrupt in many ways, especially when you're young and maybe maybe even a first-time uh, yeah. wealth generation. Sometimes you don't have the skills to know how to manage wealth. Yeah. And so at a young age, especially then, I developed some bad habits, you know, fancy cars and houses on the beach. And uh, I overextended dramatically into the real estate market. And I think the result of that, the net result for me, was to actually realize that these core principles that I had kind of corralled myself around, um, when I left them, the luck had left me. And I did come close to bankruptcy. I settled all my debts, but literally I had nothing left. And it was on a fateful um, October afternoon. I was having a reflection about my life and I was actually reading my journaling because uh, I journal all the time. And in those notes, it just jumped right out at me how many of these principles that had mattered so much in my life, maybe I wasn't honoring the way that I could or should. And so 25-ish years ago, I kind of took that energy and I focused on where in the world would I love to go that, um, you know, I can love the water, the ocean, but it's got an incredible governance uh, close to the East Coast of the U.S., um, a place with no tax, um, well, moderate tax, not no tax, but also with a lifestyle that I wanted, but an opportunity for me to kind of reset and recharge. And Bermuda became that, um, that destination. And what could have been a three-year trip became 24 years and count. Stuart, congratulations on your self-awareness and also thank you for your vulnerability because all of us have a brush with the sobering impact of uh, hubris, do we not? And you've built yourself back. You are a leader and entrepreneur. You are a member of YPO, Young Presidents Organization, and a mentor and leader within that global community. So many great stories in this book that I actually want to dip into today. But first, I want to re-reference the tagline. Again, the name of your book is The Formula for Luck. Leave nothing to chance. Ten powerful principles for building a luck mindset. In fact, let's talk about that. In chapter 16, you call it the luck mindset. What does that mean and how does someone acquire a luck mindset? Well, thank you for that. And um, maybe the, the best place to start would be to say, if we think back to the time about 20 years ago when the most seminal work on mindset was done, it was Carol Dweck. And she, as many of you know, would have spoken of going from a fixed to a growth mindset. I think what we don't realize though, is it's been 20 years since Carol's work. And since then the world has moved a lot, changed a lot. And we have evolved, I think, in terms of leadership thought and practice. And what I would suggest is that if you think of a fixed mindset is that the world happens to you. I think when you got to a growth mindset and maybe people will know Malcolm Gladwell's work, Outliers, 10,000 Hours, kind of the growth mindset is very much built around that we go out and we put the time, the effort and the treasure in and in return, we get something back. I wouldn't call it a transactional mindset, but it manifests often as a, hey, if I do something for you, here's what I get. But I think what we've realized, especially in the research field of change and change management and in exceptional outcomes, is that having a barter type approach, having a what's in it for me, actually doesn't get the outcomes that other people would obtain or want and actually call lucky. In fact, it can actually undermine them. I think the mindset we want to think about it rather is what's in it for you. So where does gratitude, where does paying it forward, where does expressing vulnerability and authenticity, where does caring for other people factor in? And what happens is demonstrated across a breadth of 
10 principles that were identified and then which we researched deeply along with um, some very interesting partners in every chapter, we found that the people that invested in these 10 principles could generate outcomes well beyond what they would ever have generated had they just looked for that return of what's in for me. And um, lots of stories there, you're welcome to grab any you want, but I would start at the point that the luck mindset is really an in investment mindset. It's one where you're looking at a deeper view of yourself and the world around you. Uh, one in which uh, material wealth is kind of an outcome or, or purpose or, or um, your ability to practice generosity is part of the mechanism through which you build relationships with other human beings rather than one in which you're worried about what am I going to get paid for any given endeavor. Thanks, Stuart. I read a lot of books, uh, hundreds a year because of the number of interviews that I'm privileged to host. I think if I had to recommend a reader and a viewer today on how to pick up and read your book, I would say it's, a, it's almost like a 10-week read. Now, that may seem a little bit extreme, but I mean that literally because you have a lot of mind, uh, cha mindset challenging concepts in the book, 10 principles. I'd argue that it should be read over the course of 10 weeks to give you time to kind of reset your your mindset, your skill set, your tool set. Here are, in essence, the 10 principles for luck. Curiosity, passion, connectivity, positivity, empathy, adaptability, serendipity, choice, fail forward. And I skipped one called situational awareness. Because I'm not mistaken, you share a, a riveting story about, I think you were in Bahrain uh, some time ago. Would you recreate the, the drama of that situation in Bahrain and why having situational awareness has any connection to what you might call the formula for luck? Well, um, if you permit me, I'll flip it just tiny. I'll tell a 30-second sure. summary of why. And then when I tell the story, I think it'll make more sense. So my invitation to you, Scott, for example, would be to think, imagine the last time you were in a busy club, maybe, and you're dancing, it's packed, and the smoke starts to billow across the roof above your head. And if you think about that second, most people's immediate response is run for the door. And as you probably would know, the majority of loss of life or risk in such an event is actually from the stampede to the exit, not from the fire. My question would be, how many of you calmly turned around and walked to the kitchen? And why? Well, not just it doesn't have a door, but it will almost certainly and always have a door to the outside. So I think what we need to think about is in moments of situational awareness, you can actually magnify your luck positively and negatively based on the choices you might make. A bad choice might be to go with a crowd, get stampede. A good choice might be go the other way. So if I say that, and then I bring you back to Bahrain, I was speaking at the um, Harvard Club on the top of a very tall building, right near Pearl Roundabout. Um, I was staying at the nearby hotel. I think it was the Ritz-Carlton. And we drove up over um, the roundabout and when we did, it was amazing to look down on all these people. Um, it was a, a quite a, um, a kind, a thoughtful crowd. There were kids and parents, but they were demonstrating against government. And um, it was peaceable. There were flags, music. And when I got to the Harvard Club, we went up. I spoke that evening. And when I left and came down, the driver was waiting for me and we returned. And on the route back, he said, something's wrong. And I said, well, let's just maybe not go to the most dense area where people, let's go around. And as we drove around, you could see 
there was behind the buildings, a lineup of about a hundred police and army vehicles waiting to storm the roundabout. And we actually exited, I went back to the hotel and about an hour and a half later, those military forces went in and that became a significant um, a loss of life and a very public global concern. What happened to me though, was the immediate moment. Hotel locked down, they said, no one leave. And I thought about it and I said, well, I've got a choice here. The reality is I'm not the person they're looking for, but what I don't wanna do is be caught in a hotel in a foreign country in lockdown, potentially when things um, exacerbate. And so I actually went down and I uh, grabbed the first large fancy vehicle that would drive me. And I asked them to drive away from the city, away from what was going on towards the desert and then take the ring road, which was a four hour drive to the airport instead of 30 minutes. But as I did, I avoided the density of the danger and the risk. And actually, funny enough, I remember driving out and seeing helicopter gunships flying overhead and tanks driving in as the Saudis had come across the border. And so in that instance, my response was self-preservation, but also to be very thoughtful in the moment about how could I mitigate my risk, but still get to the Doha airport and take what ended up being one of the last flights out of the country before they shut the airport. So maybe not a story you might associate in a book about luck, but this principle of situational awareness, you even take a little bit further because although a bit macabre, you actually describe how, you know, as Americans, at least, for those who are listening to this podcast, we're all facing daily now the horrifying prospect of some life or death incident. I mean, I can't believe those words are coming out of my mouth, right? Whether it's a mall shooting, a church shooting, a grocery store shooting, a school shooting. I mean, this is shockingly commonplace every week, if not every day in America now. I'd like you to maybe, in a surprising twist, will you expand on the the value of having situational awareness and how it can, in fact, maybe contribute to your luck or, in most cases, your survival? It's a great question, and I actually am, I enjoy going off piece slightly with you here because it's, it's interesting for me to kind of ideate along with you. Um, I would say there are a couple of things. There's functional things we should know. For example, when you, are, uh, when you get on a, a tube or a metro or subway, do you get in the first, last, or the middle car? Um, the, the facts say that the middle car is a 65% or higher risk of a bomb or an event going off because of the density of people. When you arrive at an airport, do you go straight from your car through security, or do you linger at Starbucks? And you can imagine the risk profile about minimizing your time before you get behind the safety of, uh, of security. So I think when I, when I take that, you could actually speak to anyone and say, what do you practice in those moments? Is it preparation only and risk mitigation, or is it also what we do when something goes wrong? And I think when something does go wrong, there's a really, really powerful short technique called the OODA loop, O-O-D-A loop. And basically it says, you know, how do you respond when something crazy is going on? And the first thing you need to do is orient yourself and observe. You've got to do the two O's critically observe what's going on, understand for a minute, just by observation, very quickly, number one. Number two, orient. Where's the threat coming from? Where are the potential solutions? What should I do? You then decide, and then you act. Now, you can run through those four very quickly, but the important steps of actually stopping and orienting might be life and death. And I'll give you a simple example. I remember I was a lifeguard back in Canada in my late teens. And at the, um, 
a pool at the um, club nearby where I was working in the summer. There was a terrible incident where um, there was someone floating in the pool down, uh, uh, you know, um, upside down. And another lifeguard approached and the first thing they did is ran and dove into the pool. What they had not done, unfortunately, was failed to observe and orient that there was an electrical line down in the pool. And unfortunately, that lifeguard also uh, got electrocuted. So in that case, an observe and orient would have saved that lifeguard's life before then deciding and acting. So I think there are techniques we can follow. I think there's practice. And I think then there's obviously some preparation you can invest. Stuart, why did you title your book The Formula for Luck? I mean, when, I, when I read it, I thought, well, maybe it's the formula for survival or thrival or formula for making good decisions. But you very, very deliberately titled it The Formula for Luck and then wrote 10 very deliberate principles. What's the formula yeah. for luck? Well, we just talked about um, situation awareness. But when you think about things like empathy, um, how we care for other human beings, when you think about connectivity, how we connect, which is this concept of give before you take, when you think about how we align our passions and how we align our actions thereby to our passions, and I think what we all know is as, as business leaders and founders and CEOs, we want engaged and productive workforces and cultures, but how do we do that? Do we do that by demonstrating our passionate leadership? Or do we do that by investing in our team in such a way that they understand how much we care? Do we do that in such a way that we embrace change uh, which is kind of fail forward with a yes and culture, the kind of thing you could learn at Second City Improv. Do you, do you embrace the unknown and apply curiosity into questionable ideas, which is where innovation comes from? If you were to take all those points, each and every one of them actually is from one of the chapters in the book. So what I would say is when you think about it and step back, what I noticed is that five of those 10, curiosity, passion, connectivity, positivity, and empathy are what we call habits. And as habits, they're like going to the gym, they're like muscles. You can go to the gym, you can build them, you can work out, and they're unlimited in the ability to grow. Thereby, there's some math in that, meaning that they are infinite. The behaviors of luck, which are systemic or systematic, adaptability, situational awareness, and serendipity can only happen when something's happening in a system that you respond to, you respond by being adaptable, you respond with situational awareness, or you respond to an opportunity serendipitously. There's a limit to the amount those happen, thus they're finite. And then choice and fail forward are multipliers, meaning they've got huge multiplistic action because you can have all the rest of the stuff available, but never act. And if you don't act, it's zero. And if you know you multiply a formula by zero, the answer is, zero. And that will tell you the age old tale, Scott, of everyone that says, I had that idea. I thought of that, but I never did anything about it. And so this is why it became really formulaic in the description and thereby a very powerful way for people to know how to actually apply this to change their lives. Stuart, let's talk about one of the principles you call serendipity. And it's an interesting chapter because you say there are three types of serendipity. Will you walk us through those three and maybe give us an example of them and how we can find them or gravitate towards those and the, also the value? I mean, some don't believe in serendipity, right? Some people live their lives extremely rigidly, very deliberately, and don't make room for serendipity. You share a great story in the book, I think, about a, a drive in Iceland, if I'm not mistaken. Take that 
through the lens of teaching us the three types of serendipity on our way towards achieving the formula for luck. Well, thank you. And it's probably my, my favorite part of the book, Serendipity. It leads to flow states, which is another area we're researching right now. But when you think about serendipity, it actually goes back to a beautiful story about the three princes of serendip, yeah. to where the word comes from. And these three princes were not traveling um, in, in the days of old. And when they bumped into things they didn't understand, but were deeply wondrous about, they applied two things curiosity and sagacious wisdom. And that's where sagacity comes from. And effectively, when you find things in your life that are your gut response to, or they raise the hair on the back of your neck, or you're wondering about the coincidence and why, the fact is, is how much curiosity do you apply and how much sagacious wisdom or learning? So let me give an example. And you asked about the kinds of things that are and are not serendipity. So here's what is not serendipity. Serendipity is not when you have a hurricane coming and you go to Home Depot and they've got one generator left and you go, oh my God, how lucky and serendipitous I got the last generator. You got a known solution to a known problem in a known location. Not luck, not serendipity in that perspective. But if you start to think about the things that you find, you're looking for a solution to a problem you know you have, but a solution comes out of nowhere that is a form of serendipity. And that might be you have a car breakdown at the side of the road, a flat tire, you open up the back of your trunk, there is no extra spare tire, but out of nowhere, a tow truck happens to drive by. Your awareness of it, your immediate interaction, flag it down, help me out, is an example of a solution coming from an unexpected place to a known problem. The flip side is where you're in a known place and something else comes up that has no meaning or bearing on what you're doing, but you're smart enough to recognize it as interesting. That is how Velcro, that is how penicillin were found. That's how um, uh, the glue for post-it notes was identified. People were in a lab working on a known problem and a glue came up that didn't unstick, it didn't dry. You could have discarded it, but applying sagacious wisdom and curiosity said, hmm, I wonder what we could use that for. The final kind and the most beautiful kind of serendipity is where both are occurring. Something happens out of the blue and is a solution to a problem you didn't even know you had. An example of that is Newton under the tree when the apple falls and lands on his head. He wasn't out there looking for a solution, but an apple falls, he goes, huh, wonder about that. Wonder about that water falling, that leaf falling, if I throw a rock up and hence gravity. And so when we think about things we don't understand, the way we can optimize for luck, for incredible outcomes, and this is where innovation and patents and the best parts of Silicon Valley come from, are the people that are curious, deeply curious about things they don't understand, especially when they've got to apply gut. And when, when you have that, the rule is double down when you believe it's in your favor and half the risk when you believe it's against you. So it actually works negatively as well when you deem something to be serendipitously bad, you need to cut out and, and reduce your risk. Stuart, introduce us to the concept you call and illustrate in the book called the luck ladder. So I love that and thank you for bringing it back. You mentioned earlier this concept of the book in 10 weeks. And so I'm just gonna challenge and then I'm gonna double click that for you. The, the, the beautiful way the book was designed was I actually wrote a chapter canvas on how to build a book specifically to be a reference manual for someone who wants to spend time on self-improvement, who might want to breeze through a book, but then reference back and deeply invest chapter by chapter 
on all 10 principles. And so what I actually did is I spent a lot of work working with actually the person that actually wrote the forward for my book, Salim Ishmael, who you might know from Exponential Organizations, OpenEXO, Singularity University, XPRIZE. And we actually designed a luck assessment, which is available online on the website, formulafluck.com, where you can actually measure your luck. And through thousands of CEOs having run this now, we actually now have data on actually how relativistically lucky you might be compared, compared to gender, society. I've done 10 countries in East Africa at country level risk and luck. And the outcome of it is you can actually measure and a standard, not just your array from all 10 principles, but actually where you land as an overall score versus a large statistical mean. That score is your ladder rung as you go up. And what we challenge people to do is to assess before the book or invite them before the book to assess, find out where they are, and then start practicing on the areas that they're most deficient, the areas they have the most space between where they want to be and maybe where the global best average is. And if they were to do that, they can noticeably improve the outcomes really quickly. And then if they were to reassess, they've now climbed up that ladder. So we give people a way to measure in the famous Silicon Valley way. If you can't measure it, you can't improve it. We give people two tools to measure their progress towards becoming luckier. Stuart, you may not like the way I'm going to ask this question, but I'm going to ask you to do your best to embrace it. Uh, what do the luckiest people have in common? Um, great question. So I think when I'm when I was researching and I was looking, there's a guest star in every chapter. And I was very purposeful, Scott, not to recycle all the big names. In fact, all the people that are voracious readers around me said, show me people I don't know. Show me people that have compelling stories I don't know. And as I started to index through that, I was trying to figure out kind of that other side of the coin of, of, of the beauty of where luck can be found in places where you might not usually look for it. And I think one of the things that I think about is if someone wants to get a handle on their very best opportunity, they're going to do it usually from a deep sense of curiosity. Um, that's where kind of that opportunity to work in ourselves comes from. And in fact, a book that inspired me in my journey, I talk about it in the form of luck was David Brooks, The Second Mountain. It's the idea that there's always a mountain behind the mountain you think you're on. And it's not the climb. It might not even be the summit, but it's the tribe that accompanies you on that climb. That's my dedication in the book. And what I've realized is the powerful ones probably start with curiosity. Not just curiosity to read, but curiosity about yourself, curiosity about how to be a better dad, a, a husband, a mother, a member of your community. And I think aligning that to passion and deeply investing in the things you care most about probably are the core big two ones, but that's why it scales, how we connect. I always say, give before you take, give as much as you can ask, never ask and then worry about how to give. And so I think as we start out, that's why the habits are so foundational, but the powerful one I think is curiosity. It's a thirst for learning about yourself and about how you could be the best version of yourself going forward. Take it one step as we finish our discussion beyond curiosity. I, I don't minimize that. If someone wants to work on their mindset and become more lucky, send us all off with something tangible we can do this week, this weekend to, to, um, to curate, to, uh, to pollinate, if you will, a mindset that creates more luck in our lives? How do we work on our mindset? 
So uh, great question. And, and I'm gonna answer it two different ways. Um, I'll try and stay on time for you. Number one is I think we talked about hubris at the beginning and I, th I think hubris is the enemy of luck. So if you can identify areas in your life where you are, are kind of being too aggressive, too bold, not empathetic enough, not thoughtful enough, not a good enough listener, truly not putting yourself in someone else's shoes and trying to understand why they feel how they do. This is an application to any parent, any sibling, any leader anywhere, especially when building a thriving growth-based organization is really getting yourself into that listening space of empathetic understanding of another human being. With that, you can kind of take it anywhere. And I think luck is found within those deeper connections. Um, so that's number one. Number two, the other side is this concept of act and ask and fail forward, which is kind of the final two power chapters in the book. We tend to sometimes think that we um, act enough, but often we don't ask. And a simple thing like asking for help, uh, asking for directions, asking for something that you think someone might say no to, but you just put yourself out there, which comes from confidence. Um, you'd be amazed by what a generous, kind, thoughtful ask will result in. And then more importantly, you need to right size your asks. And what I mean by that is we, we practice always the principle of if you're going to do anything, think about the time and treasure, how much money and how much effort am I going to put into it? And if you can right size them, meaning that you're innovating, you're actually a lean startup in real life as a human being, that means that if you get it wrong, failure isn't massive. In fact, hmm. what Barbara Corcoran um, from uh, um, Shark Tank, uh, who I interviewed in my fail forwards, the power phrase she always uses is the biggest thing that differentiates people from a successful or win or are lucky from people who are not is their ability to fail and not feel sorry for themselves for too long, limiting how long we feel sorry for ourselves. Hmm. So act and ask, don't feel for, sorry for yourself because you right-sized specifically the time and effort invested and then acting from the heart are probably the two biggest lessons I think you could start with. It's such timely advice. Literally this morning, I was driving my oldest of three sons to school. His name is Thatcher, after my hero, Margaret Thatcher. And he's 12 years old in seventh grade, and he was nervous about getting the results of a math test he just took. And uh, he studied for it, he has a tutor, and he's getting the results today at noon. And I said, text me your results. And I said, but Thatcher, remember, you've already taken the test, so you can't impact it. Just like politicians, once the polls close, they sit in their hotel suites and they agonize over the results. The results are the results. And I reminded him of this idea that life is mostly, you know, 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. I said, you remember about four years ago, I've written six books, Stuart. I have two more coming out this year. My second book was a Wall Street Journal bestseller. My first book was not. It qualified, but for some politics on the list, it didn't make it on the list. And I said, Thatcher, remember, I was really annoyed for one day. I like went to bed, I had a pity party, I moped, and I got up the next morning, and I called up the publishers and said, I have a new book idea. And I've had a great run since then. I reminded him of your point around you know, being able to uh, uh, mitigate your risks, not so much that you don't self-disrupt and take um, opportunities, but also recover quickly from them and not have a pity party. Such a great send-off. Uh, Stuart, uh, talk to us about the company that you are the CEO of. It's called Summit Junto, if I pronounce that right. Talk a bit about that, and we'll let you go. Well, thank you for the time. Um, the Summit community is a thriving global community. It's been around for over 15 years. It's probably the world's most 
well-known community for the incredible creators, innovators, humanitarians, philanthropists, artists, chefs, uh, scientists that are really built around a combination of passion and purpose, really as kind of the alignment. And um, I've been very fortunate to ask to lead their membership networking side of their business called Junto, which works and builds forums and small group advisory boards for people that are really trying to find kind of what is their impact and passion point in life and how can they express that um, with generosity of, of care kind of for the betterment of themselves and their communities that they serve. Um, it's been a, an absolute pleasure to work with an organization like it and especially to be able to magnify maybe some of the principles we've talked about today in service of not just you know, leaders, but actually in groups. Because when we're with cohorts and small groups, as you well know, Scott, we become more authentic, more vulnerable. Um, we start to do some at work on ourselves and we start to become incredibly trusted counterparts to other people. And again, uh, that's the tribe. And if we could do a better job, and this is what Summit does, we help you curate that group. So it's not, it's not casual, it's very intentional. Um, if you can surround yourself with extraordinary people in a place of trust, and do so in a place that you can bring your best self forward. I think that's an ingredient for a beautiful future and one with great luck. Beautifully said. Stuart Lacey, I don't typically dedicate the interviews for C-suite conversations to C-suite books, but this one had something special uh, that kind of uh, uh, tugged at me. The formula for luck, leave nothing to chance. The 10 powerful principles for building a luck mindset. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>